Why did you think you were the right person to, to solve this problem? We had this idea. We thought, well, it has to exist already. Like, of course, it's so simple, but it didn't exist. So we had no idea what we were doing, which is the best asset we had because we were so quick to ask people for their advice and their support and their insight. Hey, my name is Eloise and I'm the Managing Director of Taboo Period Products. 2003 National Entrepreneur of the Year. 2003 Westpac Social Change Fellow. And what you've done takes so much courage, so much bravery to start a business right after school. Do you tie that to any event or the way you were brought up when you were younger? Bravery is a funny one because at the time when we started, we didn't know that we were doing a brave thing. We were doing something that we wanted to do. As the responsibility increases and as your knowledge increases as well, as does your understanding of what you've done. And so it's a really funny evolution. And I think that's why I'm been so encouraging of young people to start things they don't know what they don't know and naivety is such a beautiful blind to and a shield to what you're getting yourself into for really good reason what have you got to be afraid of why would you bother being afraid fear is something that i think we misinterpret as stress a lot there have been certainly sacrifices that you do make because you put something else first but that's also kind of kind of a you problem <laughs> Before we get to this episode, Amin and I had two massive favors to ask. We started this podcast on our passion to connect with interesting people with fascinating stories and sharing those stories with everyone so we can all learn from them. Now, what's truly fueling our growth and to help us share more stories with some very interesting people? One is our passion of storytelling and really wanting to hear people's stories because we generally believe in the power of sharing real human stories. But also, your word of mouth and sharing with your family and friends is just as powerful to help us have more reach to people out there. So please, do share it with anyone who you think might benefit from it. Currently, only a third of you that are listening to us are, have followed us on any whatever platform that you are uh, accessing to our podcast. So we would love to see more of you joining that cohort. So please, follow us on whatever platform you're hearing this message on. For now, let's get into the episode. Eloise? You've had a number of incredible years. Um, 2003 National Entrepreneur of the Year, 2003 Westpac Social Change Fellow, and one of in Daily's 40 and 40, just to name a few. So what is it that you do and why is it important? Thank you. Um, thanks for having me. So what do I do? Um, I am, I guess, a tampon saleswoman most days. So I sell pads and tampons um, to the Australian market and um, run a company called Taboo. So we're a social enterprise. We sell period products and all of our profits go into ending period poverty. And really that's an experience where someone isn't able to access period products. Um, currently one in five girls in Adelaide will miss out on some school because she can't afford or access period products. Um, and that's what's considered period poverty. Um, so we decided that half the population for 40 years of their life buy this product. And, uh, we wanted to sell people a brand of pads and tampons, um, where the profits were going into supporting, uh, people out of period poverty. So yeah, I run, I run that company. I sell tampons and pads and mm -hmm. Uh, I'm involved in, yeah, a lot of amazing projects and discussions. And, yeah. That is shocking to me. One in five. Mm. In Adelaide, you said. In, in South Adelaide. Australia, yeah. I didn't say Adelaide. I meant South Australia. South Australia. Do you have, <laughs> do you, do you have these stats for nationally and internationally? 
No. So um, there's a really little amount of research that's been done about how prevalent period poverty is. Um, the one in five statistic was found with the Commissioner for Children and Young People in South Australia. Their research showed that, yeah, it was one in five girls that um, completed their survey and that was a insight, I think, of four and a half thousand um, respondents. Mm. Um, yeah, so, you know, that we use, we use that data to signal what it's most likely like in other states as well. Um, South Australia is, yeah, not too different from Victoria, New South Wales, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, unfortunately, we perceive that it's quite a problem everywhere. It is one thing to think about an idea and kind of ponder on it and tell yourself, yeah, this sounds like a good thing that I can do and you get pumped up. And, <laughs> but there's another thing actually executing on it. How did you come about and how did you go about Take us through those steps and yeah. what happened. Yeah. Well, um, we're going to have to go back maybe six years now um, to when I was in high school with uh, my best mate, Izzy. Her and I discovered the concept of social enterprise. So we got really excited by the fact that there were businesses selling people something that they're going to buy anyway and then using that profit for good. And this concept was super exciting to us at the time because we were running all these charity fundraisers at school, just, you know, begging people for their $2 coins to, you know, invest in this work that we really believed in. And we thought, wow, this is so much easier if we were to sell someone something. Um, so it was a pretty simple vision. And when at this, at a similar time as well, we started learning about period poverty and learned about how many girls were kind of being stripped of their opportunities just because they couldn't afford period products. And we also knew that menstruation is such a stigmatized experience that the stigma of menstruation was really kind of perpetuating this, this effect. So we thought really ambitiously and really naively, why don't, why don't we sell our own brand of period products and then use that profit to, you know, support people who are experiencing period poverty. And we had no idea what we were doing, which is the best asset we had because we were so quick to ask people for their advice and their support and their insight. And, um, it was other people's kind of investment and encouragement that made us really believe that there was something here and that it could work. So we spent a year kind of setting the foundations just after we finished high school on, you know, setting up a company. We had to wait till my 18th birthday to register the company and, um, move through some of those kind of first steps. And then we found a manufacturer, um, got a quote from a manufacturer, then brought it back home and just said to, you know, our friends and family and everyone we knew, everyone we even met that we're having this crowdfunding campaign, please pitch in. Like we're going to buy pads and tampons and sell them, blah, blah, blah. Um, and we ended up raising 56 grand in two months. And that was enough to buy our first container of period products. So that was in August, 2019. And uh, we went to market. We had a big launch party. 400 people rocked up and we just partied for like hours. It was so <laughs> such a surprisingly fun night. I've often said I would never throw a party as good as that again. It was so much fun. Um, and, yeah, we just had so much celebration around us. On the Run brought us into their stores. National Pharmacies brought us into their stores. Um, and then eventually Foodland as well. And now Drake's. So we're in just shy of 400 stores in mostly South Australia. 
Um, we're selling online. Um, we also have a pad it forward model. So you can buy our product on behalf of someone at risk of period poverty. And we then redistribute that product across the country to people at risk. So we've given away more than three and a half thousand boxes of pads now. And these are to um, homeless services, domestic violence services, um, schools that look after kids with complex needs, a huge variety of organizations and communities that realize that their communities are in need. So yeah, that we've kind of just evolved from um, invitation, essentially. We've never really had this, it kind of descript, this is how we need to function. It was really this naive evolution of this is our vision. We want this to work. How, how do we make it work? And then really um, with a lot of integrity, filtered out that advice and made decisions as we needed to. Mm. And being a South Australian enterprise, does that mean most of your investments or most of your, I guess, community focus is staying in South Australia or are you looking at the country or maybe overseas as well? Yeah, I guess like the evolutionary kind of way that we've evolved has been very much on demand. So we've had a lot of a lot of our part of four clients, for example, are interstate. We work in the central desert. We've sent product up to Thursday Island. Um, we've, yeah, really kind of spread our reach in where we've been asked to support um, because we have the means to. And certainly with the retailers that have supported us, all of the retailers I mentioned have been so supportive and really excited to bring another South Australian business into their stores. There's been this really beautiful um, reciprocity of kind of local appreciation. And um, yeah, we're certainly keen to evolve into state as well because that's certainly where a lot of our market is. And yeah, we sell a lot of our, a lot of our online orders are interstate as well. Um, we're also selling direct businesses. So, um, my rule of thumb is that wherever there is toilet paper, there should also be period products and whoever's responsibility it is to buy that toilet paper also needs to buy period products. So we sell our products, direct business, schools, unis, community centers, councils, um, and a lot of those clients are interstate as well. Mm. So the next pandemic, we might have an issue with the yeah. taboo products not, not being supplied enough. It was a problem, I think, in the pandemic, but just thankfully there wasn't this craze about it that everyone went and, yeah, but it was the next product to fly off the shelf, I think, after toilet paper. <laughs> I'm thinking of the, uh, like, your 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 flow of, of, uh -huh. of yeah, in terms of, like, <laughs> Because you said you you give your products to the charities. Is that you how you identify those in need? Yeah. So um, the pat it forward model um, is really an opportunity for people like ourselves. If you are really passionate about what we're doing, you can subscribe to a box of pads for seven bucks a month, and that's your way to contribute a box of pads a month. And then, um, thanks to the Hospital Research Foundation, we have a an employee totally in charge of managing these partnerships so she can liaise with these charities and um groups and say okay cool you've reached out for product do you have supports for education do you have someone to deliver this product and kind of work with these communities yeah in a more one-on-one -on -one basis um unfortunately period poverty is like it doesn't discriminate there is it's everywhere. Um, it, you know, even in private schools, there's a need for period products to be accessible. Um, so in kind of sourcing and or finding where the need is, it's never been a problem for us, unfortunately. Like we've just really 
responded to the request that we've been given. Mm. Yeah. I come across some people who have something similar, a social problem they're trying to solve, but the question they often that ask themselves, what gives them the right to be the person to go mm. after that, solving that problem, right? So why did you think you were the right person to to solve this problem? Yeah, I don't think I've ever agreed that that's true, but I remember when Izzy and I were doing our initial research of, we had this idea, we thought, well, it has to exist already. Like, of course, it's so simple. Like, of course, I'm going to buy tampons from a brand that supports people in this way. Um, But it didn't exist. So I don't think it was a matter of like, are we the right people? It was more of a matter of, why doesn't this happen already? And yeah, it was really just like an opportunity of, wow, okay, this just makes sense. And we're the consumers as well. Um, so yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I guess when we're we're talking about our work with people at risk or our Pat It Forward partners, uh, one of the reasons why we partner directly with charities and organizations is because they know their clients best and they know the people they support better than we do. And very early on, we decided that we're not going to pretend we're the experts of all these, you know, cultural intricacies and um, geographical intricacies. Like we we don't live there. We don't, you know, work in those spaces. Um, so, yeah, it's really great to have Gabby and my team who supports all of these organisations understand so much cultural variety. Keep going. <laughs> right. Um, oh, sorry, guys. You're so fine. Yeah, it's so great to have uh, Gabby in my team to support people in such a an open way and to have the flexibility of listening and then responding to needs in a, in a yeah, more kind of personable way. There doesn't have to be this um, cookie-cutter solution because there never is, mm. nor should there be. Mm. So, so part of your research initially... You've identified, right, there's a gap here, but now you've been doing it for six years. Do you think the actual problem from where it all stems from, like the whole idea of why do we have really period poverty today, Mm. is it still the same problem or has it been evolving over time or how do you think you've been tackling it like over the years? Yeah, I think there are many reasons why period poverty exists. The main fuel, I guess, is the stigma and the discomfort and the shame that's associated with menstruation. And that's very much a social discussion. And there has been some really great progress um, that since we started, every state in in Australia has uh, a budget now to support girls in school with period products. Fantastic. That didn't exist six years ago. Um, And there's been a huge cultural shift, like the fact period poverty wasn't a term when we started as well. Um, So people are really considering the human rights element to the discussion of menstruation. And I think we're also starting to realise when we stigmatise menstruation in such an extreme way, we're perpetuating such a problematic issue. Um, Yeah. And even the likes of, you know, making sure our boys are educated in school, not having to gender this topic. Like it doesn't have to be a gender topic. None of us would exist without menstruation. Like we just need to talk about it like a human experience and then there's going to be, um, yeah, that shame is lifted off and then there's a greater access to product and knowledge and just freedom of, yeah, your body. Yeah. 
the the term you said the the period uh, period pro, pro, poverty poverty yeah apologies <laughs> period poverty and then we said the the state the federal government is having a fund mm. towards towards it were there direct impact of the work you have done uh there are certainly there are so many players in this and so many beautiful brilliant contributors um and it was kind of each state state by state governments made steps yeah um i would love to see a federal kind of umbrella this is an expectation in school um that would really be wonderful but um yeah so many wonderful activists and um charities and yeah some awesome ambassadors there's been huge conversation for so long before we were involved especially yeah. well the fact that there was a gst on pads and tampons as well that was a really um hilarious but like mind-blowing thing that yeah there was gst on pads and tampons while condoms panadol pita bread uh viagra all were gst free uh there wow. was a luxury tax on pads and tampons nevertheless your work would have had some impact on those things right yeah oh definitely i think um yeah we we have screamed from the rooftops at every point possible how does that make you feel yeah, I I guess good and thankful and it really reinstills hope that, you know, we're not just wasting our breath. Um, but, you know, I'm not surprised nor do I think I'm any more special just because, you know, I chose to make some noise. I think that we all have, you know, invitations and opportunities to do so and I'm really thankful that I had the means to do so as well. Mm. The... One of the things we love to do in the podcast, mm -hmm. we, we love to go behind the title and get to know the person a bit more. And what you've done takes so much courage, so much bravery to start a business right after school. So do you tie that to any event or the way you were brought up when you were younger? Yeah. My, um, so there's certainly like, I think, Bravery is a funny one because at the time when we started, we didn't know that we were doing a brave thing. We were, we were doing something that we wanted to do. And um, as you, as the responsibility increases and as your knowledge increases as well, as does your understanding of what you've done. And so, yeah, it's, it's a really funny evolution. And I think that's why I'm in so encouraging of young people to start things because they don't know what they don't know. And naivety is such a beautiful blind to, and a shield to what you're getting yourself into for really good reason. Um, so that's certainly an aspect that's helped me get to where I am, I guess, is that naivety. Um, but yeah, I have a really fantastic family that are very hard workers. Um, so my dad's dad also was an inventor. He, he fought in World War II as a, um, he was a radio operator. Um, and then after the war went into inventing things as he wasn't an engineer, but he worked for an engineering company and he invented the hole in the middle of the barbecue plate. Um, and some, yeah, fun, quirky stuff like that. And yeah. So, and then my dad also, he's a used car dealer. He's, he owns his own yard. So, you know, hard work, innovation, business management were things that I guess I absorbed without really too much knowledge. Um, and then when I finished school, I remember telling dad, this is what I want to do. And he, as a small business owner, was just like, 
it's too hard. Don't go to uni. Like you've got a good grade, go learn, go work for someone else. Like you're smart, you'll do well. Don't bother. And it's such good advice. Like it's such true. It's so true. It's so hard running your business. And he, you know, knows that too well, that he, he just wanted me to, you know, set myself up in a normal, less stressful way. And then we actually heard Holly Ransom spoke at my like final end of year or end of school speech. And she's fantastic. And I think she, that night specifically spoke about, you know, doing things that you're afraid of and, you know, pushing the boundaries and not really having fear about what you're doing with your life. And after dad came up to me, he's like, you know what? Fair enough. Give it a crack. And if you fail, then like you can just dust off the rubble off your shoulders and start again. Like you've actually got nothing to lose. And whether he thought that that would have such an impact, I'm not sure. Like he probably made that as a bit of an offshoot comment, but, um, and I was going to do it anyway as well. <laughs> so <laughs> Um, shout out to dad. <laughs> yeah, thanks dad. Um, and yeah, I was going to do it anyway, but it was more of a, um, like, yeah, you, you don't have anything to lose. So why not? And it, since his, well, he's given me advice, you know, when things are really tight and tough and things are really hard, he'll often remind me like, just don't be, a, what have you got to be afraid of? Why would you bother being afraid? Fear is something that I think we misinterpret as stress a lot. Um, because once you unpack that stress, it's, there's something there. Um, and if often it's like, you're afraid of this failing, you're afraid of whatever that may be. And then you unpack that fear and you're like, oh, okay, actually there's not a lot to be afraid of. I will still wake up tomorrow. I've still got these people in my life. I've still got these opportunities in my life. And then that just takes so much power away from that, that stress and that anxiety. So yeah, I definitely have a, a fantastic family, I guess, to thank for that, um, bravery. And likewise, my mom is this, you know, really loud, fantastic, um, Irish woman. And there's just a lot of Irish strength in that family that have survived a lot of stuff, you know, generationally speaking. Um, so there's a lot of grit, um, in kind of that line of blood as well. So yeah. Um, just really hardworking roots and yeah, very thankful for their um, I guess, showcase of, of what it means to work hard and be tough. <laughs> You've named grit, <laughs> hard work and failure. You're probably the secret source right there, to be honest, for any entrepreneur out there actually thinking of doing anything. Mm. But I'm curious to hear, when was the first time you think you failed? Oh, yeah, so many. And it's I I think there's a lot of focus on failure for really good reason. Like we really need to be comfortable with failure. But I think as well, there's often a focus of failure in a commercial sense. Like I think I, there have been so many times where I could have failed by choosing like easier routes or more profitable routes as well. Like those are failures as well. Um, and on a personal sense, I think some of my failures are, you know, neglecting some friendships, neglecting um, relationships and focusing too hard on businesses, you know, that's, that's a failure. And thankfully none of them have, you know, crumbled in a catastrophic way. But when I think back to failures in business, like it never really, um, failures are just learnings. And as much as that's a cliche, it's just, I will never be able to pinpoint mistakes that I've made and wish that I did it again. Like I've learned so much from all of those mistakes. Um, 
Yeah, I'm trying to give a think of a really good example about an alternate type of failure. Um, I like what you said about you could have taken a different route in terms of more, prof- more profitable mm. and, and you named it a failure. Yeah. Why is that? I have a, I have a gut feeling, but I want to hear from you. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking of this time when we first started, um, someone in kind of an, an early team of ours said, Hey, I'd love to give you my services for 10% of your company. Like I'll work for free for, for, ever or I'll, you know I want to buy in but with my time and skills and it was really early on for us so you know we didn't really understand the value of what we were pitching it was kind of just like a stab in the dark um and Izzy and I really like we went home and we pulled this offer apart so much like oh, okay like this could be really valuable and you know this could really set us up well but do we part with 10% of the company when 100% of our profits are meant to go to ending period poverty? Like that doesn't work. So we'd have to change the model. And this guy was pitching that we would change that model, that we would maybe, you know, open 20% up to investment and give 80% away. And that's still, you know, valid. You know, there are some fantastic social enterprises like Who Gives a Crap, for example. They have 50% of their profits go into their work. They do amazing business. So they've got 50% to grow and, you know, open up to investment and whatnot. But yeah, we really considered like, oh, do we do we let this guy in for 10%? And thinking back to that, I just think, wow, like we really had no idea of the value of what we were doing. And um, if we did, then we would just have let go of that integrity of what we wanted to achieve just for an easier route to have this person help us in, you know, a greater extent. So um, I think integrity is that, consideration that you need to cling to so tightly so you don't make those deci- those wrong decisions and thankfully um we recognized how important integrity was from that point onwards and it's been the first point of thought for every big decision we've made and um so thankful for that because it just proves to trump everyone else again and again the fact that you, you cling to integrity for so many different reasons yeah that's always always exactly looking for a value as something that you can stick by regardless of the circumstances. Quick one. Can you please take a second and follow us on whatever platform you're listening to us from? I'm imagining in the past six years, you would have come across so many challenges that would have taught you a lot about you and business. Mm. What have you learned about yourself? So much. Um, I've learned that I'm pretty... Agile, that's been a fun one to learn <laughs> how to pivot and how to, you know, make decisions on the spot and respond to even your gut. And, you know, I've learned, um, I've learned as well that, well, I've probably learned that there's like a, a breaking point at last year. I was really burnt out. And so to take hold of the fact that, oh, you can't neglect yourself totally. Like, this is, there is a point in which you, um, will do yourself a disfavor. And there is a point in which you have to look after yourself for the benefit of everything else and every work you're doing, every piece of work you're doing. Um, so that was a, a good one to learn, important one to learn. Um, I've learned that you can't multitask, but you can do lots of things at once. <laughs> um, I was working hospitality full time for five years while studying up to boo and work and studying a double degree full time. 
and that was a lot of responsibility and work but I had the most amazing friends at work so I had such an outlet of joy and security there and I loved what I was learning at uni so that was another you know aspect of interest and enjoyment and then I loved what I was establishing at Taboo so I was quite well balanced but totally overworked but because there was so much balance and so much energy that I was getting from the things that I was doing it was this really beautiful amazing patch of my life that um yeah I loved so yeah I learned that I can take on a lot as long as there's a return of energy yeah you can't multitask but you can do many things at the same time (laughs) we were talking about multitasking yesterday yeah I'm not too sure I think like executing a single task at a time I mean, yeah, I'm reading a book now called Time Magic, which actually talks a little bit about that. Haven't finished it yet to share Mm. insights. (laughs) But you mentioned a few things. So you said there's yourself and Gabby, I think, another full-time, and there's someone else who's Mm part-time. Sounds like a very lean, very lean setup. And then I'm sure you're doing a myriad of other things on the side without even asking. (laughs) So how does Eloise take care of Eloise today? Yeah, I uh, don't do any work on the weekends. It's great. Why would I? (laughs) Love it. I could, but I I will not. Um, And I really am intentional about taking time out in the afternoons as well. Like once work's done, I'll go home. Um, I do a lot of yoga. Um, Spending a lot of time in nature is really important for me taking my shoes off, like, you know, little things you have to learn that, oh, you you know, you you value this experience and just not being so focused on what needs to be done, but how you feel, what you need, spending really good quality time with friends, um, like looking after my friends, you know, really, um, it's so important to be in part, a part of the, like the threads of your community, not just doing what you need to do that runs out really quickly Mm. so yeah sorry there's not a clear package of how I look after myself but just many different strategies at once I think taking off your shoes really got me because that's what I do in the office I thought it was only me (laughs) (laughs) literally releases a lot of stress yeah I just sit in the corner with my socks on (laughs) yeah let's get you done exactly you need to learn these little hacks and then not be ashamed of them Take those shoes off. <laughs> I've never shared this ever before with anyone. Now I'm sharing the podcast. Yeah. Right. Thanks, Louise. You're welcome. <laughs> so would you say what you do in Taboo is your mission? Personally? Uh, I think that certainly for now, but I feel like we're so complex as humans that we're never going to, and nor should we ever pocket ourselves into one purpose. Um, I've I'm many roles, like I'm a sister and a, a friend and a daughter and a manager and, you know, a bunch of different roles and responsibilities. And I don't want to be only focused on one. Um, my passion is social enterprise, like the concept of social business. And I certainly want to commit my life to really strategically redesigning the worlds that we live in so that the world is more fair and equal and accessible. And I always want my work to be embedded in human rights and equality. I just think that's the most 
obvious place to work. And, you know, if I'm here and I've got this amount of human energy, that's where I want my energy to be and making other people's energy more. You know, there's, there's a lot of problems in the world that we can look at. Um, and social enterprise is one of these tools that I just find so exciting in the way that we can transform the way that our dollar works and the circularity of our dollar is such a powerful concept that I really want to see kind of take off. And it really is. I think this year especially has been so much traction with social enterprise. Um, I can't wait to see where the conversation unfolds. And I think there's so much work to be done there that I am really keen to dive into more. And yeah, so, so keen for Taboo to grow. But I think it comes back to the fact that I don't think period poverty should exist in Australia. So it's like, you know, I don't want that. Or anywhere in the world. Or anywhere in the world. Yeah. Um, I say Australia because that's where we're focused until it's solved here. Um, But I don't want that to be my life mission because I don't think it should be a problem to start with. You know, it's like. Hmm. Taboo shouldn't have the right to exist in an ideal world. I want like the concept of our business to be made redundant. I don't want to have to. That in itself is a mission, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's, I guess, why I wouldn't pocket my my mission to, to be so specifically in the business just because it shouldn't be. <laughs> Let's assume the numbers get much better over time. Let's say it becomes one in like 100 million, mm-hmm. right? What would you tackle next from a social enterprise perspective? I don't know. I, I I don't I don't think that like taboo is a really effective because we sell period products to end period poverty. That's a really clear message to the market. So um I mean there are so many other things to consider and so many other causes that I'm passionate about. But yeah, it would have to be the right business model. It would have to be the right kind of commercial vision paired with the right yeah product. There and there are so many ways to do it as well. It not all social enterprises are so clear and we sell this and do this. You know, there are employment social enterprises that have businesses where they employ um, people from various situations. Yeah, so many ways to do business with a social focus first. Yeah, the list is big. You can look at the SDG list of problems, whether it's food poverty or, or refugees or shelter or water. Mm. You know, the list is pretty very significant. Mm. I've heard a quote a few weeks ago that kind of really stuck with me. And tell me if this is applicable to you and what you think of it. It says that all high-performing individuals are ordinary people that sacrifice everything to achieve one thing. Mm. What have you sacrificed to be where you are today? Because you have done something quite significant. Mm. Yeah. I don't know if I'm heaps into that quote. That's fine. (laughs) Yeah. Tell me more. I don't think that, I certainly believe that highly successful people are just ordinary people. And I think to be highly successful, often you have to start with a fair amount of, of privilege and security. Like if I didn't have, um, a family that said, go and give it a crack, then I wouldn't necessarily have the security to say, oh, if this fails, I'll be fine. You know, if I was um, a young person 
living on the streets, then there certainly wouldn't be as much ambition to give something a crack, even if it might fail. So, and I think that's the case for a lot of highly successful people. Of course, there's people that are highly, highly successful that haven't had any kind of, you know, leg up, but I think we really need to analyze the point of privilege that we start with. And there have been certainly sacrifices that you do make because you put something else first, but that's also kind of kind of a you problem. <laughs> it sounds really, really dismissive of a lot of sacrifices that people make, but you know, you're making that for reasons of which of are of value to you. So the sacrifices I've made, whether that be, you know, like never going to a pub crawl when I was at uni or never really investing in uni friendships or that experience just because I had so much else to focus on. I never will think of that as a sacrifice just because that that was a decision I made so that I had energy and focus to work and to live out of home and to, you know, have a business. Um, I guess that ties back to is it a sacrifice if you are doing what you love? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think we need to take ownership and responsibility of those sacrifices as well. Like a lot of people will sacrifice um, things in their life that they might regret later. That was still something that, you know, they, they made that decision and we have to take accountability for those things. And it comes back to, you know, kind of um, self-care and those measures of putting what is important to you first and, yeah, life is full of sacrifices and compromises, but um, I think what you said yeah. earlier really talks kind of ties back to you know the Maslow hierarchy of needs, mm. security, and and is the most basic need. Yeah, on which you can build everything else on top of. And I can quite agree with you. Um, I had a very different growing up, and that security piece wasn't there mm. for a while. So for me to even think about anything else was not even an option no because the most basic thing is not there mm. and when i moved to australia when i started creating the first step of kind of the needs that i have as a human being then i could like see myself start thinking about bigger and bigger and bigger things mm. so i totally agree with that mm. Mm. yeah yeah and i think we're just not really encouraged to consider what we have to start with in this entrepreneurial world it's more like there's this expectant point start. Everyone thinks it starts from scratch. Yeah. I think it's it's a bit of a nuanced topic. Mm. It's like, you know, um, this person, this founder started from scratch. We often say Amazon uh, from a garage and you start using all these examples, but yeah. we, ne we never actually look at the assets, the networks, the people they knew at the time. Yeah. You know, what, what sort of, at uh, what point in life they were. Yeah. And it's so true. Like often these, play these businesses do start from scratch. Like we started out of my old bedroom at my parents house <laughs> and I was working hospo slinging beers to pay my rent and while we could you know like it was very much from scratch and whatever we could pull together but I don't want to ignore the fact that we also had a home and had a, a bedroom at my parents house that you know I could leave so we could put some desks and products in and, and great influences around you as well such good influences mm. yeah and yeah great people that just would listen, great city, say great yes. country, supportive yeah. network. Yep. Just the cultural thing aspect of starting something new in Australia. I'm pretty sure Ali can relate to that. Yeah. Different parts of the world often, 
you know, there's a lot of naysayers around you. Mm. Actually, Australia is amazing for this. Mm. People will support you to do whatever you want. Yeah. This is not the case in most countries, actually. I think your surrounding network plays a big role. And this really makes me think of a lot of people with social media these days, we tend to compare, right? We look at someone, someone will look at you, for example, and it's like, oh my God, she's killing it. And here I am in my pajama eating ice cream on his freaking Saturday night, right? <laughs> but what people don't realize is that like the, the early beginnings, I mean, it would take character and bravery like you had to make it something, but that initial factors are very important. Mm. I'm reading uh, Stephen Jobs biography right now. The guy was in that case, but he had. <laughs> it was yeah. cool. I think it was. <laughs> he was a crazy True. person. But he had all these right supported networks around him. Like his dad was a person who was a mechanic, but he was like someone that was very detailed and mm. would do things the most simplest way. And all those little things kind of influenced him to look outside of just being at school. I don't want to be at school. He was saying to his dad and he was keep getting moved because he was just trying to find his way. But he yeah. had that security. He didn't have to worry about anything else. Mm. And yeah go made what he did and I actually struggled to have friends i think from memory i mean it was in oh, school. he was brutal mm -hmm. yeah he was brutal like the way he has treated employees he worked but oh my god i wouldn't do it that way yeah <laughs> anyway um what is the best question i could ask you best question you could ask me right now man um that's a good question <laughs> <laughs> Wow, nice save. <laughs> that was terrible. <laughs> That's okay. Little nice save, dodge. but also keep going. <laughs> yeah, uh, best question you could ask me right now would be, oh, I just, I'm, I don't know what you're interested in. <laughs> it could be anything. Um, you could ask me what book I'm reading. What book are you reading? <laughs> I'm reading this amazing book called Humankind by Rutger Bregman. And it is the most hope-filled book ever. It's talking about the start of humanity or humankind and the evolution of the human race and how we've evolved to be so sociable and kind and how that's actually our default. And it totally trumps all of the commentary we have about humans, like, you know, human um, nature is so greedy and, power hungry and violent and it totally just throws it in the bin and provides all this evidence that suggests the total opposite and it's just so refreshing tell us about one of the evidence if you yeah well a great example he speaks about the lord of the flies you know the story of the boys that are sent to it or get trapped on an island and um they eventually turn on each other and it's this you know terrible narrative that was this book that's been in literacy expectations forever like heaps of people read it in high school um and people refer to that narrative as oh you know everyone's just push comes to shove you just turn on each other and i didn't i haven't read lord of the flies but it's a disaster um and people are really suspicious and upset about lord of the flies as the narrative because it was kids as well so it's a story of like human nature not just corrupt adult responses but children turn on each other um anyway this author talks about how the author of lord of the flies was just this really bitter sour teacher who hated kids and just wrote this story out of a like kind of place of expectancy with no and it's a fiction novel like there's no truth to it but then this author talks about 
a real life Lord of the Flies event that actually happened off the coast of New Zealand. No, somewhere like off the East coast that way, East of Australia on an Island. These um, schoolboys went into it. They stole someone's fishing boat and went traveling to a certain Island to go fishing on school. And then they got something happened to the boat or they got stranded. Anyway, they, the boat eventually failed and they got stranded on this Island that was totally inhabitable. Um, and no one lived there. So there was 16 or 12 boys that were stuck there and they were there for 16 months. And so their families had just written off that they were gone forever. And, um, it was really sad, but these kids stayed alive. They looked after each other. They got, they built like homes. They had water systems. They found food. They had like their own law. Essentially, if you had a fight with someone, you had to spend four hours on different ends of the island until you were ready and calm enough to come back and shake hands. So there was this like they had conflict resolution mechanisms in place and it was just like peace and they lived. And eventually someone found them and they were so surprised. They were so healthy, so fit, like they were working off the land. So they were really fit and muscular and one of the boys broke his leg I think when they got off the boat and it had healed perfectly because they just used their heads and looked after him and like let this guy rest and put in some splints and stuff like beautiful beautiful story um anyway this book just yeah refers to so many of these stories and just like lifts my perspective into a place of like hope and oh people are good and things are gonna be okay I think, you know what makes me think of, and I'm going to make this literally totally on fly. Mm-hmm. Kindness and, and goodness is our number one, I think it's in our nature. Mm. But I feel like there is this fight between devil and good that's happening all the time mm-hmm. on an individual level. And because of your surrounding environment and what you see every day and what you consume every day, devil tend to be winning. Mm. People are chasing all the things they should probably not chasing and prioritizing the things they're not prioritizing. Mm. But if you look at it on the most basic level, what is the thing that gives you the most amount of love and happiness? Yeah. It's kindness. It's yeah. relationships. It's I mean, if you want to talk about science, I was listening to the podcast of the longest ever study done on humans. What's the answer to happiness? Relationships. So Yeah. yeah. And this book is really profound in that it also talks about why we do bad things mm. so he spends the first half of the book talking about these experiences of why we're good but then he talk, and then he's kind of like but i'm not going to kid you on these really us- ugly aspects of our history and then provide some research and insight into why we can socially kind of adapt to really dark and evil acts and you know so but it always comes from a place of um, innocence, which is where the hope is in that you can speak to someone that you might consider evil, but they believe that they're doing the right thing. And it's this really interesting, mm. yeah, insight of psychology. So do you think you have a dark side? Well, yeah, this book is kind of suggesting that we don't in that where we all haven't, we all have just this deep innocence because physically we're designed to be, sociable and kind and yeah what you said earlier reminded me of 
someone told me this is like you only re realize and recognize faults and bad behaviors in someone else because you have it yourself mm. and i think that's very true yeah i don't know like I just, that makes sense to me and it's like if you don't re if you realize dishonesty anger arrogance and greed it's because you may have some element that of that in yourself. Yeah. Well, I think is if we think to what this book is suggesting and that we're all capable of greed and dishonesty and whatnot, and we know where it comes from in a place of wanting to secure your needs and wherever that may come from. So we're able to notice it for sure. And yeah, people can do awful things. And I think mm. that's why we need to have really honest conversations with ourselves and have some really good mechanisms to do self-reflection and consider who you are in situations and you know be objective in your analysis of yourself so that we evolve to be better humans um so yeah we all we all we're all capable of doing awful things if we want to but i don't think we no one enjoys being a bad person but then you've got yeah sociopaths and psychopaths that different category of humans that are also, you know, like, you know, they, they don't necessarily want to do bad things that they don't have the, mm. um, the brain psychology is just so different. You know, you strike me as someone who reflects often. Mm. What is one question that you ask yourself? Um, I really have started to ask myself, how are you <laughs> often? And like, yeah. it's such a simple thing, but really just to check in and see what I need each day so that I can practice self-care in a better way. Mm. So how are you? Yeah, pretty good. Pretty sleepy and um, content, hopeful. So when I go home, I'm going to have a meal and I'm going to go to bed. Beautiful. <laughs> we have uh, an ending tradition to uh -huh. the podcast. The previous guest has left you a question. Oh, that's fun. And I mean, it's going to play. Are you ready? Yeah. This should be an easy one. Yeah, it's an easy one. What was the last thing that made you excited? I love that. I like the way she asked that too. <laughs> <laughs> the last thing that made me excited would have been last night. <laughs> It's so simple, but it's true. Last night I had my friend Lily over for dinner and she was telling me about her work and I hadn't had an update of her life in so long. And that made me excited that she is having so much, finding so much joy in the work she's doing. Awesome. Yeah. I love that. Thank you so much for your time. <laughs> this was an awesome discussion. You went all sort of places. Yeah. No, thank you for having me. Thanks for your question. Thank you, Louise. Thank you for listening. I'm sure this episode has really resonated with you, but we'd love to know which part. We would love to get your feedback, so please do reach out to us via our website or any of our social media platforms. You can find these through any of the links attached to this episode.